invite you to take your Bibles with you now. We've been going through a section in the book of Isaiah, and so I'd invite you to turn to that book. To the 45th chapter this morning, Isaiah 45. And when you get there, if you are able, we invite you to rise out of reverence for God's word. We will read this chapter together. Isaiah 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belt of kings. To open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places. That you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know, from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? For your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness. I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it to be empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. 
Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. This is the fearsome word of the living God. You may be seated. Does it ever seem to you like things are out of control? Does it ever seem like sometimes everything is being left up to chance or luck or fortune, that it's all just one big roll of the dice? Does the darkness of our age ever overwhelm you like it's all just too much? What's going on in the world? Countries are electing seemingly crazy presidents and cotton candy prime ministers. Some nations are collapsing. Others are prospering. Some are starving. Others are overrun with war. And that's just the big picture. What about the things in my personal life that seem to be out of control? And our passage this morning is a great assurance because it reminds us that everything is under the control of the only God who exists. He has a good purpose for what he is doing. For he is bringing salvation to his people. This morning we're going to look at four points. First of all, we're going to look at verses 1 to 6. To the point that God wants us to know that he is the only one. God wants us to know that he's the only one. Secondly, our second point, verses 7 to 13, God wants us to understand that God does whatever he pleases. God wants us to understand that he does whatever he pleases. Our third point, verses 14 to 21, God wants us to accept that God is the only Savior. God wants us to accept that God is the only Savior. And fourthly, verses 22 to 25, what does God want us to do? He wants us to bend the knee and swear allegiance with the tongue to the only God. So know that God is the only one. Understand that God does whatever he pleases. Accept that God is the only Savior. And bend the knee and swear allegiance with the tongue to the only God. So our first point this morning as we go through this magisterial passage, our first point of what God wants us to know from his holy word in Isaiah chapter 45 is this, 
God wants us to know that he's the only one. And I'm emphasizing that word know. He wants us to know that he's the only one. Because that receives emphasis in the first section, verses 1 to 6. Look with me at verses, verse 3. It says, so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel. And again in verse 6, that people may know from the arising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. And so in this passage, there's an emphasis on this idea of knowing. The reason why God is doing what he is doing is that we would know something. So that we would understand and comprehend and take to heart one essential truth. That he is the only God. And there is none besides him. And you may say to yourself, well, I already knew that. That's not a big deal. I knew that. But let's let that sink in for a moment. Let's let that sink down deep into our bones in a new and profound way this morning. Because we're not talking about some kind of generic God out there. We're not talking about the big guy upstairs. We're not talking about Santa Claus in heaven that everybody thinks is God. We're not talking about some kind of custom-made God or politically correct God. No, we're talking about the God of the Bible, this God. We're talking about Yahweh, Jehovah, El Shaddai, the Lord of hosts. He is the only one, and there is no other. What is God doing, anyway? What is God doing so that we may know that he is the only God who exists? Well, to answer that question, we have to look at verse 1. So would you look there with me? Verse 1, just the first few words, it says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Now we have to understand something very important here. We have to understand that to a Jewish reader reading this opening statement, this is utterly shocking. We need to feel the shock of this verse. Because this is an embarrassing statement. A disillusioning statement. A Jewish reader reads this verse and immediately feels sick to their stomach. Because this is offensive and scandalous. Why do I say that? Because the word anointed here in this verse is the word Messiah. It's the word Christ in Greek. Thus says the Lord to his Messiah. Thus says the Lord to his Christ, to Cyrus. What? Cyrus was the king of Persia. He's a Gentile. He's a heathen king, a pagan king who worships false gods. He does not worship the one true and living God. He does not keep the law of Yahweh. He's a sinful and unrighteous Gentile. And yet here in verse 1, Cyrus is called the anointed one of Yahweh, his Messiah, his Christ. So this is a shocking and disturbing and disorienting and scandalous statement to me. But God continues in verse 1 to say he has grasped the right hand of Cyrus. That God is going to subdue nations before Cyrus. And he's going to embarrass kings. 
And he's going to open doors for Cyrus that no one can close. God is saying that he's going to be with Cyrus, the great king of Persia, in a very special way. In verse 2, God declares that he's going to make things very easy for Cyrus by going on before him and preparing the way for him. God is going to level the high places and break through the doors of bronze and iron. Verse 3 says that God will do even more for Cyrus. He's going to give him great treasures that no one even knows about because they're hidden away in dark secret places. God is giving everything to this Gentile heathen king. But why? Well, the second half of verse 3 gives the answer. So that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. God is doing all of this so that Cyrus, this Gentile, heathen king, will be forced to recognize that this is not the work of any of his false gods. No, this is the work of the one true and living God. Both, both verses 4 and 5, God declares that Cyrus does not know him. Cyrus does not acknowledge him. But Cyrus will be forced to know that the God of Israel, who has equipped him and given him the success and victory, Cyrus will eventually be forced to acknowledge that there is no other God besides Yahweh. For God is doing all of this as strange and shocking and offensive as it is for the sake of his servant Jacob, for the sake of Israel, his chosen. God sovereignly works on the movers and the shakers of history and the great empires and nations, all for the sake of his tiny little people, whom he has not forgotten. And God is not doing all this just so that Cyrus himself will be forced to recognize the greatness of God. Verse 6 tells us that God is doing this so that all people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides God. He is Yahweh and there is no other. God is doing all of this so that in the end, when the dust settles, he would receive the credit. He would get the glory. He is doing this so that when all people reflect on what has happened, people from the rising of the sun in the east to the place where it sets in the west, they would realize that only one God is behind all of this. He is the God of Israel. This morning, God wants us to recognize that he is the only one. He wants us to recognize that there is no other God besides him. We turn on the TV and we see all sorts of things happening in the world today. It all looks like chaos. We might begin to think that the devil is in charge of it all. Or we might begin to think that no one is in charge of it all. It's all just happening randomly or haphazardly. But no, God is in charge of it all. And we are his tiny little people. But he has not forgotten us. God is still the one who moves the movers and the shakers in this world. Even the pagans, even the Gentiles, the heathen who do not know him or acknowledge him, 
God is the only one. And he does not share his glory with another. Our second point this morning is that God wants us to understand that God does whatever he pleases. This is what the Bible says in the book of Psalms. In the book of Psalms, it says it two times. First in Psalm 115, verse 3. And a second time in Psalm 135, verse 6, it says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And this is talking about God's free sovereignty. He does not have to explain himself to us or to anyone else. Remember Job? Job thought that he was owed an explanation for all the suffering and pain that he went through. But in Job 41.11, God declares directly to Job, Who has a claim against me that I must repay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. God is free to do whatever he wants, whatever pleases him. And he does not owe an explanation of himself to anyone. When in verse 1, God calls King Cyrus his anointed one, that is, his Messiah, his Christ, that is shocking and disturbing and scandalous and even offensive to a Jewish reader. And a Jewish reader might question, why on earth would God call this Gentile king his Messiah? But in verse 7, we see God making an incredible statement about how he works in the world. Verse 7 is a deeply profound declaration. I would say that this verse, Isaiah 45, verse 7, is among the top 10 most profound verses in all of the Bible. When we read this verse, we are in some deep, deep <coughs> truth here. And so, because this is such an astonishing verse, we need to take some time with it. God begins here by saying, I form light and create darkness. It's important to note that the word for create here is the special Hebrew verb, bara. It's special because in Scripture, only God ever commits this verb. Only God creates. This word is never used of humans. If a human creates or makes something, then a different verb is used. But this verb, bara, is only used of God and his creative activity. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created, bara, the heavens and the earth. So that same word, bara, used there, is the same one being used here. Only God does bara. Only God creates. So God forms light. Okay. Well, that's all well and good. Light represents truth and beauty and goodness and righteousness and justice. God makes all that. Yes. Amen. But God creates bara. Darkness, too? Wait, what? But... But darkness is the opposite of light. God is the one who brings darkness as well as light? Well, let's continue. It gets even deeper. He continues, he says, I make well-being. 
Well-being is the Hebrew word shalom. We normally think of shalom as meaning peace. And it does mean peace, but it means the kind of peace that flows out of well-being. The root idea of shalom is well-being. So God makes shalom, or well-being, or peace. And that corresponds to light. Well, that's very nice. We like shalom. Yes. Amen. Let's continue. It says, and I create calamity. Well, here's that word create again. Bara. It's the kind of creative activity that only God does. But here, the Hebrew word for calamity is ra. And the Hebrew word ra is the normal word for evil in Scripture. For example, when the Scripture says that the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord, the Hebrew says that they did ra'ah in the sight of the Lord. And if you're reading out of the King James Version this morning, that's how the KGV translates it literally. It says, I make peace and create evil. So wait. What? It was bad enough that God said that he creates Barak. He creates darkness. But now the Bible is saying that God creates Barak. He creates evil. Now I want everyone to pay extra special attention here to what I'm about to say. Because it's very important that we all understand this in a proper and balanced way. I do not want you to leave here today thinking, Pastor Jake told us that God creates evil, and therefore God is the author of evil, and therefore God is evil. If you leave this place thinking that, then you've totally missed the point. So I ask everyone to continue with me here. Because let me make this very clear. Scripture says, 1 John 1.5, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And James 1.13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So we know that there is absolutely no darkness in God, and God cannot be tempted with evil. So then what is going on here in this amazing verse, Isaiah 45, verse 7? Well, I think the key to understand is this. What word is... Is ra'ah evil? What is it being paired with? Is it being paired with goodness? No. And that's a good thing. Because if this verse had said, I make goodness and create evil, then truly we'd have a, a problem here. We'd also have a problem if it was being paired with righteousness or uprightness or something like that. Because then evil would be the contrast of these things. And then this verse would seem to be saying that God creates evil. In the normal, moral sense. But what word is actually being paired with ra'ah, evil, here? Well, as we said earlier, it's the word shalom, well-being. And that's important. Because the opposite of shalom is not moral evil, but it's situational evil. And this is why the modern translations translate this word here as calamity or disaster. And so God is not saying here that he creates evil in the moral sense, but rather he is also the one who has control 
over the bad things in our lives too. The things that seem to us as grievous and evil. And here's the point this morning. We can be very tempted to say, all the good things in my life are from God. But all the bad things in my life are from the devil. Many Christians fall into this trap. But this profound verse is reminding us that God is the only God. Therefore, he's the God of the good things and he's the God of the bad things too. The bad things that we experience in our lives as well as the good things and the blessings we receive. The devil is not a God. He is a created being. He is nowhere even close to being on the same level as God. God is infinite. The devil is finite. The difference between God and the devil is like this. God is as great as God is. Well, the devil is like the echo of a bursting snot bubble that a an amoeba makes when it has a cold. This profound verse is reminding us that both the good things and the bad things in our lives ultimately come from God. God gives them to us in his infinite wisdom, and we must trust that he has a good purpose for them. God is saying here that he is completely free to do whatever he pleases. If he wants to make Cyrus his Messiah in order to accomplish his good purpose in delivering his people Israel, then he is free to do that. For he is the only God who creates both light and darkness, both well-being and calamity. There is not some other God who is responsible for the darkness and the calamity. No, the same great God who is sovereign over the light and the shalom is the same great God who is sovereign over the darkness and the calamity. And now when we hear this, though, when we hear this, really it all boils down to one of two responses. Blame or trust. Either we're going to blame God for the bad things in our lives and bitterness, or we're going to trust God, trust in God that he will ultimately see us through and that, what he, and that he has a good purpose behind what we're going through. In verse 8, God reinforces the fact that he is the author and creator of righteousness. Then in verses 9 to 12, God emphasizes the fact that he is the creator and we are the creatures. And as creatures, we cannot question the will and purpose of the creator. It would be absurd, as absurd as a clay pot talking back to the potter while it's spitting around on the potter's wheel and saying to the potter, what are you doing? Don't mold me like that. Do it this way. Don't give me handles. Give me a spout for pouring. Well, we know that would be absurd. That would be silliness. Or it would be uh, just as absurd as a baby being born. And then as the baby is being born, he says to his mother, what are you doing? Don't do that. Do something else. This is just as silly as when we as God's creatures talk back to him and question him about what he is doing and demand an explanation from him. Verse 13, God reiterates that Cyrus is his righteously chosen instrument who will accomplish God's purposes of rebuilding Jerusalem and setting the Jewish exiles free. God is free to do whatever he pleases. 
in heaven and on earth. He is the only God, and there is no one besides him. Both the good things and the bad things in our lives come from him. We thank him and praise him for the good things, and we trust in him in spite of the bad things. And Job, remember Job recognized this truth. He recognized this truth in Job chapter 2, verse 10, when his wife advised him to curse God and die. Do you remember what his response to her was? Job said to her, shall we, shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? So Job understood this as well. God is sovereign and God is free to do all that he pleases. He can use the Gentile heathen king Cyrus as his Messiah if he wants to. He can cause Job to suffer great things if he wants to. He can sell Joseph down to Egypt if he wants to. He can use the terrible Assyrians to punish Israel if he wants to. And he can send his one and only son to suffer terrible things on the cross of Calvary. Bearing the sin of his elect church upon his shoulders if he wants to. But in all of these things, God has a righteous purpose and a glorious intention. For Cyrus will bring the Jews home to Judah. Job will be restored. Joseph will save Egypt and his family. The Assyrians will be punished. And Jesus Christ will purchase the salvation of his elect people. And that's what we trust in. That in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Our third point this morning is that God wants us to accept that he is the only Savior. And that only makes sense, doesn't it? If God is the only God, then only he can save. Buddha does not exist. Allah does not exist. Vishnu does not exist. None of these false gods can save. Why? Because they don't exist. And again, in this section, God is challenging the false gods of the nations. And he holds them up as nothing. And we've seen this in every chapter, starting from, from Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, 41, 42, 43, 44. In every chapter, God is mocking the idols and the false gods of the nations. In verse 14, God says that even foreigners, Egyptians, Cushites, and Sabaeans will acknowledge God, that God is in Israel, and there is no other, no God beside him. In verse 15, God is called the Savior. Verse 17, it says that Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. So God does not provide a temporary salvation. He does not save for a limited time. His salvation does not have an expiry date. His is an everlasting salvation. Then in verse 20, God points to the folly of the Gentiles who carry about their wooden idols and keep praying to a God that cannot save. They cannot save because they do not exist. And finally, verse 21, God says once again that he is the only one. There is none besides him, but he is a righteous God and a Savior. And so like waves pounding against the shore, God is saying over and over again, I am the Savior. Trust me. For salvation. I am the only one who can save. 
Don't go running after false gods who cannot save because they don't exist. The only source of true, lasting salvation is me. Nowadays, people don't like to hear about the exclusivity of salvation. They want to hear things like, there are many paths to God. They want to be inclusive, not exclusive. But God is entirely consistent in both the Old and New Testaments. He is the only salvation, and Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. And so the Apostle Peter declared in Acts 4.12, talking about Jesus, he said, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men that we might be saved. Here in verse 17, in our passage, God is granting a glimpse of the eternal salvation that will be accomplished in the work of Christ. For eternal life is found only in Jesus. The everlasting salvation that God promises for Israel, the people of God, here in verse 17, is ultimately fulfilled in the salvation brought through Jesus Christ. Because God is the only God, he also wants us to accept that he is the only Savior. This leads us into our fourth and final point this morning. God wants us to bend the knee and swear allegiance with the tongue to him as the only God. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved, all ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And as we get to the end of our message this morning, I want to draw our attention to two things in this final section. First of all, verse 23. If you look with me there, it says that God swears by himself. Why does God swear by himself? It's because there's nothing greater by which he can swear. And so when he swears an oath, he must swear by himself. But God's word is fully true already. So why must he confirm what is already fully true with an oath? It is to give us a double assurance that what God says will happen. What he says will happen will indeed happen. God swears by himself that one day to him every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. That sworn promise extends beyond Israel to every single person who has ever lived. One day, every single knee shall be made to bow to the one true and living God. And every single tongue will be made to swear allegiance to him. And this theme is taken up in the New Testament, where Christ is the fulfillment of this oath sworn by God. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, Christ Jesus was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Listen to this. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So how will this oath of God be fulfilled and accomplished? When every knee bows to Jesus Christ, and every tongue confesses that he is Lord, and God the Father is glorified in this. And so I say to everyone, one day your knee will bow to Jesus Christ, and your tongue will confess his lordship. How can I be so confident about this? Because God himself has sworn by himself that this will take place. The second thing to take note of in our last section is the last verse, verse 25. Here God promises that all the offspring of Israel shall be justified. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because justified is an important word in the New Testament. We are justified. That means we are declared to be righteous in the sight of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And yet here it says that Israel will be justified. How? It says, in the Lord. They won't be justified by their own good works or righteous deeds. They will be justified in the Lord, God promises. So here again we see a foreshadowed glimpse of the gospel. For we are the offspring of Israel who are justified in the Lord Jesus. Not because of anything good in us, but because there is everything good in him. God looks at us and he does not see our, our rebellion and our sin and our dirt and our filth. Instead, he sees the righteousness of Christ that we wear by faith in Jesus. And that is how God justifies us and declares us righteous in his sight. We are not righteous in ourselves, but we are righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning we have learned from Isaiah 45 that God is the only God. And therefore he does whatever he pleases. And it pleases him to be the only Savior. And he will save his people by justifying them in himself. Giving them an everlasting salvation. If God is not your Savior this morning. Because you believe in the existence of at least one other God yourself and you do whatever pleases yourself so that you refuse to bow your knee to the one true and living God and you refuse to give him your allegiance because you have declared yourself righteous in your own eyes then know that a day is still coming for God has sworn by himself that this day is coming when you will bow the knee to him and you will acknowledge his dominion over you. But by then it will be too late. For God's wrath will consume you. As the just punishment for all of his enemies. But if God is your savior this morning. Because you know that he is the only God. The only one that can save. That you cannot save yourself. And so you trust in him alone. And you gladly bow the knee. To Jesus Christ and confess his lordship with your tongue then know 
that God does whatever he pleases. And give him praise and thanksgiving that he has pleased to adopt you as his precious child through Jesus Christ. That he has pleased to justify you by the righteousness of Christ and give you everlasting salvation in him. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this fearsome passage from your word. This reminder that you are the only God. Therefore, there is no other God beside you. Therefore, you are in control of all things. And you do all that pleases you. And we thank you, Father, that your good pleasure comes from a perfectly righteous perfectly good wisdom so that we can trust in you that not only the good things in our lives come from your hand but also the bad things the things that even seem evil and grievous to us we can trust in you that you are the one who will see us through it that you have a good and righteous purpose in it so that we can glorify your name to depend upon you at every moment. Father, we thank you that you are not only the only God, but you are also the only Savior. That you have provided an everlasting salvation. That you have justified your people in yourself. And that you have promised that there shall come a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, out of allegiance to God the Father. Father, as your people, we cry, Maranatha, come, O Lord. We long for that day, Father, when we shall kneel before the Lord Jesus Christ and with joy and thanksgiving declare that he is Lord. And so, Father, Help us to have a bigger view of you. Help us to trust you in all things, knowing that truly, in your free sovereignty, you are in control of everything. And what a wonderful confidence and assurance that brings. To know that not just the good things are under your control, but the bad things too. <laughs> That, Father, you use these things to discipline us because you love us as your children. And so, Father, help us to grow in this knowledge. May we be broken in our reverence towards you as we are humbled to think of how small we are, but how great you are. So, Father, I pray that you would encourage us as we leave this place. I pray that we would be refreshed as we reflect upon the deep truths of your word. That if you can use Cyrus as your Messiah, you can do whatever you want. But we thank you, Father, that from the promise of your word, when you do what you want, we can trust in you because you are a righteous and just and holy God. And so we thank you, Father, that your sovereignty is over all because your sovereignty was even over 
the worst thing that has ever happened, which is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And that was a part of your goodwill and purpose. And we can trust in you that you will see us home to the very end. Father, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.